Hello, I'm Diana Edwards. This is Our Stories, Conversations on Conscious Living and Dying. All of these stories are courageous journeys of self-awareness and healing, often told by guests who have never been interviewed before. While each story is unique to the individual, these beautiful stories remind us that the human experience is a collective experience. And so, the wisdom you will hear and feel can speak to us all. Welcome to Our Stories. Today, this is her story. And by her, I mean my good friend, Elizabeth Irvin, who is a former nurse, author, yogi, and owner of True Wellbeing. Welcome. Thanks, Diana. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk with you about my you know, dying experience, the uh, experiences that I've had so far with death and dying. And um, whenever you're ready, we can get started. But would you mind first telling us about true well-being? Oh, sure. So true well-being is basically sometimes I think when when the company started, it start, I started it in 2002, and basically a health and wellness company to help educate and empower women to live in a more body, mind, soul lifestyle. Um, the name came from, you know, sometimes you don't know what you're doing and you think, well, you can't, you don't know until you find the words for it. So I really mapped out those words, true well-being, to think of true as living in my divinity, well as being, you know, well in my body and being as being that you, um, you know, you really live in a present state, a very present moment awareness of your being, of being a human. You know what I like about your true well-being site, the word, and I'm a big believer in the power of words. Yes. So I love that you spent the time to find those words. But for me, when I go to your site, I feel the word kindness comes up for me when I go there. It's a soft, gentle, and it's a very kind site. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but that's kind of the energy that resonated when I first found your site. So Elizabeth, you're also my yoga nidra teacher a practice I found not long ago, which is actually, I believe, an ancient practice, but hopefully you'll tell us a little bit about that. But you've also agreed to do some recordings for us in yoga nidra practices for people who are in palliative care or hospice care, for the caregivers. And I'm really excited to have you do those recordings for us and get them out you know, for the public to use. So I want to thank you for that in advance. We're going to keep you pretty busy, but I'm really excited about that. And maybe you could say a little bit now about Yoga Nidra. I'm super excited to record Yoga Nidra for you just because it's something I learned over 20 years ago. And back in the day, it was a very, it's an ancient practice that's been around for 5,000 years or maybe even more, but it's now become more popular. It's more in the Western world and people are understanding the benefits. It is a very powerful way to relax your body relax your mind, and move yourself into a state of self-healing. And who couldn't use more of that? I agree. I agree. Well, are you ready to talk about death? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like to start with asking people if they remember their first experience dealing with death, even if that's not really dealing with it. But what was the first time you realized people die or had that brought into your awareness? You know, Actually, that's a, such a really good question, and I, I suppose it would be that the memory that comes to mind, I must have been about eight years old, and my grandpa died. 
So my dad's dad. And I didn't really, um, the, the memory that I want to mention in this is that it was about my dad. It was more about my dad than my grandfather. So my dad's grandfather, my dad's dad lived in, his parents lived in Wisconsin. And at the time we lived in Kansas and um, my dad was a professor. So on a professor's salary, you know, there was no way that the five kids and my parents were going to get up to Wisconsin to this funeral. So my mom was taking my dad to the airport, a small regional airport. Back in the day, you know, you're saying goodbye on the tarmac. And so they're hugging and I'm watching from the car, from the, from outside the car, watching them. They're hugging and um, then they give, my mom gives him a kiss and I hear him say, are you okay? And my dad just, you know, had tears in his eyes and he said, I'm, I'm just so numb. And, um, and as a kid, you know, that really shook me up because my dad, I had never seen my dad express his emotions before. I had never seen him cry. I had never seen him say, my whole body feels numb. You know, I thought, what's happening to my dad? You know, he's going to get on this airplane and I don't even know if he's going to be okay. So that was my first kind of experience, I suppose, if, if that's what you're asking. No, it is. Did you associate the numb with the death of his father? Yes. Okay, so you knew it was in reaction to... Yes. Sorry, I didn't know if I explained that right. No, you did. I just wanted to double check. Now, was that it? Did you did mom go home and explain what happened? Or No, we didn't really. I don't remember. You mm-hmm. know, I don't recall how she handled it with all of us. And just and then the same thing happened, Diana, with my mom. So when my mom's mom died, the thing is, my mom didn't use the words numb, but I remember my mom was distraught, you know, and she was just crying and crying. And and that was so upsetting for me. You know, I was I was older then. I was about 18 at that point. And um, I couldn't make my mom feel better, you know. So that was a that was, again, for me, not so much missing my grandma. You know, it wasn't it was the reaction that I had from both of my parents when they lost their parents. Mm-hmm. Now, were you close to the grandparents? You know, we never lived in the same place. So it was more like holidays. And I felt closer, you know, I did feel close to my grandparents, but not like, you know, they didn't live with us or they didn't live in the same town. Did you experience the loss yourself at all? Or was it just sort of a natural thing? You knew they were older or whatever. Yeah, it felt more natural. It felt like, you know, they all lived into their um, later years. There wasn't anybody who died prematurely. And um, it was more of me, you know, feeling my parents' sorrow. But that, that, for me, was the first memory that I really had with death. There's been many more, you know, since then. But that was the first rule. Okay. No, that, that is great. How comfortable are you with talking about this subject now, would you say? Oh, I'm, I'm okay. You know, that's like it's something I was wanting to talk to you about because I feel like it's a great thing for people to, to talk about. I mean, one thing I would say from my nursing experience, you know, um, death and dying was one section of what we learned in nursing school. But, you know, the overall plan of conventional medicine is to prevent death. You know, it's to keep everyone alive. And, um, you know, I think that's a real issue with something that we're missing in our current healthcare system. You know, is, you know, I know we have hospice and I know we have, you know, beautiful nursing homes, but I think there's a lot of um, disconnect in this department of conscious dying. And that's why I was so excited about what you do. It's like, she's got it. You know? <laughs> I'm excited too. Well, I'm excited because when I started this, there were so many people who came up to me 
and I actually tell this story a little bit in the introduction, but when I was getting ready for my first podcast and deciding to, you know, get out there and be more public because people had asked me to with my work, I decided I better take it up a notch. And I had to go to like a makeup store and get makeup because I thought, you know, I don't wear a lot of makeup, but I know on camera I better put some on. And so I kind of set out on this mission of self-improvement <laughs> for for this podcast. And I went into the makeup store and what was so much fun is the, you know, I said, this is going to be on camera. Do I need more makeup, less makeup? I really don't know. And she was so sweet. And she goes, well, what is it you're talking about? And I would tell her, I said, you know, well, death and dying and, you know, normalizing the conversation. And she spent about 15 minutes standing there telling me this beautiful story about helping her husband die. And then I go down a few doors to get new glasses so that I had nice glasses for, you know, nothing too big and reflective. I was really thinking it through. And the woman goes, well, what are these for? And I said, well, I'm going to be on camera. And she said, what are you talking about? And I told her, and she said, well, you're going to talk about reincarnation, right? And I remember going, well, probably not, because I'm not sure that was why I was invited on the show, but maybe, I don't know. And it was cute. Everyone had something they wanted me to talk about. And I thought it was so beautiful, because that's kind of when it clicked. And I thought, there's a real hunger for all of us to share our stories and we all, exactly, and we all have different experiences, but I think we can all relate to them. So in a way, it's like a collective consciousness of stories that we can all tap into. Okay, I want to ask you a few questions, but I'd like to get back to the nursing. What did they teach you in nursing school or around death and dying at the time? You know, it was very, um, it was very sort of, uh, what's the word, you know, like the stages, of course, you know, the stages of grieving, you know, the stages. stages. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there was like the, the chapters of what we're supposed to know, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't really any experience, you know, there wasn't, so you did different rotations in nurses, nursing school. So you do med surge, you do pediatrics, you do obstetrics, you do home health care. There wasn't any section on dying you know, like going to hospice. That was always something you could have, like I could have chosen to specialize in that. And I suppose now in this day and age, there's probably subspecialties for nurses, nurse clinicians and nurse practitioners in death and dying. But that was nothing, you know, so I'll tell you my age, I'm turning 58. So, you know, (laughs) when I was 22, you know, finishing nursing school, there wasn't anything like that. And so I, my first job, out of um, school was in a neo ICU, a neonatal ICU where there was a lot of death. Uh, we lost a lot of babies, and um, it was traumatic. But I was young and and sort of naive to the whole experience of being. I wasn't a parent, you know, and I didn't understand what that might feel like to lose a baby. But I really did get um, totally stressed out after I I did. I see you work uh, for two and a half years and then we moved to England. So I wasn't working in ICU anymore, but I went through a post-traumatic stress of that ICU experience for about six months. I was kind of depressed and I cried a lot. And I think I was just processing what I had been on, you know, on this hamster wheel. Stored grief. Well, and you don't have time to process. You no. you have babies that need your constant attention right there. Oh, and people yelling at you and, you know, I've 14 IV drips in one little baby and, oh my God. you know, just life and death. Mm-hmm. And that was every day. I had a, a nursing friend in, gosh, in the 80s, and she said she would had a similar job and she would come home at night 
and it was a small apartment and she didn't want her neighbors to hear. And she would like go in the bathroom and put a towel in front of her face and just sob because she didn't have time. She said, I didn't have time to mourn the babies when they died. So I had to do it when I got home. And oh, I get choked up to this day thinking what that must be like to be in that space, having to be courageous and brave and loving and professional to a T. It's true, Diana. It really was an interesting experience. I was 22. You know, I did it from 22 to 24 and a half. And, you know, it was an incredible experience that I didn't know what was happening at the time. It's definitely like a being in war, you mm-hmm. know, like when you think about a soldier in war and they're just going through the motions and they're doing it because they have to, you know, they have to be able to save somebody's life. They have to do what they're, they're You're talking about the doctors yeah, in those or situations. In, or like anybody who's in a stressful situation like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we just did what we were supposed to do to keep as many babies alive as we could. Right. And it was a big unit. We had 35 ventilators. So, you know, that's, that's a big staff. You've got you know, 150 people, mm-hmm. you know, in that room, in that whole space. So it's just manic, you know. Well, and there was no, okay, we're going to meet on Friday afternoons and sort of help you process this and decompress some of these emotions. It was no. nobody, I don't think people thought about that. No, nobody. So this was 1985, you know, that was not happening. I mean, hopefully it's happening today. But I, it I hear more wasn't. of that is available, yeah. but I'm not in that yeah. world right now, so I don't know. But I do know that caregivers who are at home taking care of grieving family members or friends, they don't have a lot of support, which is why I'm looking to team up with a bunch of different people and create more online services and self-care practices. So You know, it's true talking about a caregiver at home with somebody who's dying, it's the same, you know, it's like they are going through the motions of taking care of that loved one and they don't get a break. You mm-hmm. know, they, they are doing the same thing. And then I think that's what happens sometimes. I mean, you're, you're more of an expert at this than me, but I can imagine the grief and guilt that you feel once that loved one passes, if you've been caregiving for say a year or more, And then you feel guilty because you're relieved, you know, that you're not having to be put in this position, but then they're gone. It must be horrible. It's complicated. You know, grief is complicated very often. And uh, all of that would need addressing. So, yes, you're right. Thank you for bringing that up. So I wanted to just ask you, and I don't know, we could reflect back or not, but what are your beliefs in the sense of, managing death and dying like what do you use as your core you know beliefs around oh this is how and where i contextualize these death and dying experiences it's a good question and it's so different for everyone I absolutely think. different for everyone <laughs> i think that you know all i can think of is that you know you you you're raised in a certain way and you're raised with rituals and traditions that you know you've grown up with so i grew up a catholic and so we always had a rosary we always had a funeral, you know, whenever somebody died, not necessarily even one of my relatives, but I remember going to all the different ones. And kind of when the penny dropped was when Ron's dad died, my husband's dad died, and we were sitting around at the rosary chanting, you know, doing the rosaries, praying the rosary. And it just hit me so clearly, like, it's just like in India, when we would sit around, you know, and when we do our mantras and we do our chants with our prayer beads and, and the incense, you know, the sense and the feeling. And 
So the tactile feeling of the prayer bead, the scent of the incense, the sound of the rosary being said, or, you know, in the, in the Eastern part of the world, the mantra being said. And I just took so much comfort in the ritual, you know? So I think to this day, like Ron's mom is on the brink. We haven't really got into that, but she's in between two worlds right now. And Ron's, um, you know, really not planning on doing much of a ceremony. He wants to just do what the old fashioned thing would be called a wake, you know, which is just however you really want to do it, you know? And, and, and I said, that's absolutely good with me. You know, I don't think that you have to do anything in a, in a ritualistic way that you don't feel you want to do. So I think our times are changing, you know, and I think the way that we do, but I do, I guess what I'm trying to say, Diana, is that I think rituals and traditions around death are super important. They're closure, they're a way for the family, the people, the loved one to feel like there's a ceremony, there's a honoring there's something very special about letting go of this person and let them pass on and walk on. Well, they bring comfort, yeah. but they also, when I think of rituals, and I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of different types of rituals in all sorts of, not just death and dying, they move energy. A ritual moves energy. So it gives you a chance to not get that out of you forever, but just move it through you. And maybe there's a lot of buildup because you knew this person was dying or the shock of the opposite, like you weren't expecting this person to die. And that's a lot of stuck energy. And I do think rituals give you a chance to move that. I love that. I love the ritual moving energy idea. And it's true. That's how I've observed it. And then whatever is your ritual is your ritual, you know. So you have two stories that I asked you to bring today, and I'd heard them, and I thought they were really poignant and helpful, and you agreed to come share them with us today. So thank you. And we're going to start with the one about your husband's father dying. Right. Okay. So my husband's father was a farmer and a gentleman. He had the kind of uh, demeanor that a bird would come and rest on his shoulder and just so lovely. Anyway, he was on his deathbed and the hours were really, you know, coming to an end. And I was traveling behind the family. I had a work commitment. So I was arriving just a little bit later. And my husband said, when he knew about this um, podcast that we were doing, he said, don't forget to tell him about my dad. So I said, okay, I'll ask Diana if she, it's okay that we share this. And she's, yeah, it's okay. Oh, it's a great story. <laughs> okay. So um, I arrived at the hospice center and there was a vigil of people in the room. And, and um, you know, it, it was like I was the last person there that he was waiting. He hadn't had a chance to say goodbye to me. And so, you know, I go up and hold his hand, it's, you know, tearful. He's tearful and he's hardly breathing at that point. And, um, but we looked at each other with each other's eyes, you know, and I'd known him since I was 18. I've known my husband since I was 18. So he was like a second dad to me. And, um, and it was emotional. But then uh, my mom, who was also in the room, she made a good observation. And she said, you know, I think that we should all get out of here for a minute. I've made some dinner at the house, and I'd like us all to go up and have dinner together. And then, you know, we can trade off who wants to come back. We'll only be gone 45 minutes um, to an hour. And honestly, Diana, literally, we sat down to eat dinner, and there was a call from the hospice, and he passed. 
So he was waiting, you know, he was waiting, I think, to say goodbye to me. And I think he was waiting for us all to get out of there. <laughs> so he'd have a moment, you know, I think that's one thing I have heard about death and dying is that many times people who are on the, on the edge of death really want that space so they can let go. Well, the greatest advice I've heard and I pass on when people, because I do a lot of coaching of people who are dealing with a loved one who's dying and they'll tell me like the stage they're in or what's happening. And really the best advice is let the dying lead. And I would tell you, and I'm not talking about like, okay, they need this thing taken care of, you know, their body's suffering or something and I need to take care of that. I'm talking about they will set the pace if you can really be at peace with listening and, you know, we want to help. We want to take the pain away. We want to make it pretty. Whatever. There's a lot of stuff that can come up. And then there's also that I don't know what to do stuff that can come up. But if you can listen to the dying person energetically, they're guiding you into the death they want. And I would say that's what you experienced. Somehow his wife got the feeling that you were all to leave and you did. And he had his chance to say goodbye. And he probably didn't want to see you all standing there staring at him when he took his last breath. And it was just easier for him. And he had reached the ability of everything he wanted to do before he died. That's what I hear such beautiful closure on that story. Now, I don't know if you felt this way, but a lot of people who have similar stories will have a lot of guilt. Like, I just went out to get a cup of coffee or I just went to the bathroom and and I don't think it's an accident. Having heard enough stories now, I would say, that's okay. You, I really feel you would have been there if they wanted you to be there in a situation like you just described. Well, I love the, the aspect of let the dying lead. I think that's really, really a very poignant, uh, direct way to help people understand it. And I honestly didn't feel guilty. You know, I felt like he was doing it his way and, it, great. Was, and it was easier, honestly. Well, thank you, because I want people to understand you felt, from what I understand the story, you felt it was a beautiful unfolding. So your situation was different in that regard. And hopefully some people who do kind of get tough on themselves for being human or whatever and leaving the room for a minute can hear what you just said and integrate that into maybe what happened with their loved one. So thank you. And that's actually an introduction to the second story, which is the one about your father dying. Yes. I do really want to talk about that because you know, it was a, a very interesting situation that, um, and as a writer, I, I wrote about it. And before this interview, I actually went back and visited my notes, my, what I had written, and it brought up a lot of emotion. Hmm. So it was great. You know, it was great to revisit. He's in his fifth year of being gone, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, a poetic um, thing. We'll get to that later. I think the thing maybe is just to start by telling you a little bit of the story behind it. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a kid from Kansas, and my parents lived in Manhattan, Kansas, and that's called the Little Apple, if you didn't know. So, <laughs> anyway, um, he, my dad had fallen ill. He was um, 81 when he died, and his birthday was, is uh, one day. We're one day different on our birthdays. So, we have kind of a lot of, we're, we were very similar people, um, and he... Um, 
he had gotten ill that fall, and so it was coming up to Kansas regularly, sometimes weekly, sometimes every other week, and this had been going on for a few months. And so it was one of the last times that I, it was the last time that I saw him, but I knew it was getting near. And, you know, I have three kids, we have three kids, my husband and I, and so there was still... We had ones in, I think they were all in high school at the time, which is a tricky time to leave, you know, kids unattended. And so I was going back and forth. Anyway, it was the last visit, and I, I, I can still recall so much of it, Diana. He, uh, it was wintertime. It was just after his birthday, and it was a cold night in Kansas. And I had arrived on a late-night flight and um, got, went straight to the hospital. And I remember going through those sliding doors at the small Kansas Regional Hospital. And um, being with him, you know, in his room, and he was an avid reader. So he, it was even, it was late, but he was still awake. And uh, my dad was a professor who was a professor of um, industrial engineering. And his, his mantra, his life's work was work smart, you know, so he was very efficient in everything he did. And he was an avid reader, read like three newspapers a day. So I sat and read to him, and I took so much joy in just getting to sit there and read. And um, but I ha- I was kind of getting bored, you know, of some of the newspaper stories. And so I decided to read the book to him that I had in my purse, and it was called Proof of Heaven. So I was processing my dad's death and wanted, and I had, you know, it was just out. I think he had just written this book, The Neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind has just forgotten his name, but anyway. Even Alexander. Thank you. Yeah, it's, on, it's listed on our website as a recommendation. What a great, what a great story. And I know he's written several more since then, um, but this one I happened to be reading and I read it out loud to my dad. And my dad's like, oh, honey, just a little bit longer. Don't leave. Just read me a little bit more. I just love this beautiful story. And it was so odd for me to hear him say that because he was such an engineer, you know, like we never even talked about life and death and, you know, all these things. And so it was just that was kind of an amazing thing that that happened, that he he was so into the story. So then um, I do put the book down and uh, I go over to him because he was still very lucid and, um, you know, I knew I could communicate what I wanted to with him because at points he was sleeping a lot, but he was very alert and awake at this point. And I held his hand and I looked in his eyes and they looked just like mine. So if you can imagine, we have the exact same eyes. And um, I just told him I didn't want him to leave and that I was scared and that I didn't want to say goodbye to him. Mm-hmm. And then he started crying too. So we're both crying and he's not a big crier, you know, but he had become so childlike in his, the last um, times that I was with him. And so I said, dad, I, I need to do something. And I think it was trying to get out of that awkward moment. And I said, will you do me a favor? And he, and he, he nodded and I said, can we choose a sign? I'd love to have something that shows me when you pass, you know, that I can still connect with you. And he got this big smile on his face and he acted so cheeky to use an English expression. And he goes, okay, let's pick the number five. And I said, all right. And so uh, there's five uh, children that my mom and dad originally had five of us. And so he said, I love you all so very much. Let's use the number five. And so that was it. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. And I gave him a big hug good night. And I went back and slept with my mom with my mom. And um, I took a plane back, you know, home the next day. And it was about five days later 
that I get a phone call from my little brother and he said, dad's really, really on the edge here. You need to come now. And so um, I didn't get there in time. I had uh, booked a flight for 6 a.m. the next morning and I get to the airport and um, um, the weirdest thing, the weirdest thing happened, Diana. So I'm at the airport sitting at Intercontinental in, in Houston and um, uh, I look up and on the marquee, I notice I hadn't noticed because everything happened so fast that um, the, my flight number is 555. I have a photo of it. <laughs> and the board time is 5.55 a.m. Flight 555 at 5.55 a.m. And then I get on the, I go to get on the plane and this, I'm, I'm just bawling, crying. And the stewardess is like, are you all right? I'm like, I didn't even talk to her, but I was like, I'm just having a miracle here at the moment. There's something really weird, but amazing at the same time. So then I get on the plane and my little brother uh, calls again. He said he passed. And so I get home, I get, you know, to where we are in, um, in Kansas. And I find out that his time of death is, um, and it's, it's, I'm actually not a hundred percent sure what it's recorded on the birth, on the, on the death certificate, but he was alone from 5.45 AM to 6 AM the morning when he died and nobody was in the room. My brother and sister were there. My mom had taken a break and they had all gone out to get a coffee. And in that 15 minute window, much like Ron's dad, he passed on. So um, I like to think he died at 555, um, but it's not, it's not 100% documented. But the others are. Oh, for sure. And I have photos. And you have photos. <laughs> but then the, the crazy thing, Diana, is that it continued to happen. You know, so, um, and it happens, it's happened for the last, and, and now we're having this conversation in his fifth year anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to share that little bit, what happened when we were <laughs> texting each other. That was so funny. I was just texting you, confirming, and I don't know. I just went in and sat at my desk. I was wrapping things up for the day, going to go make dinner, and you go, look at the time. And I'm like, what is she talking about? Because I, I just, and it was 555 on my computer, and I just said, how nice to meet your father. I felt like he popped in to say, I'm excited she's going to tell my story. Yeah. And I do. I really do think our loved ones love us to share their story and what was learned and shared amongst your family and how you can share it with our community. But here's the thing that strikes me about your story, and I just want to tie it back into how we started. You said you were saying goodbye to your dad basically that time. He was crying. You were crying. He wasn't numb this time. Oh, that's so great. That gave me goosebumps all over. But so that's, that's the journey of life, isn't it? Yeah. He started out with the death of his father, and he was numb. Right. And then he goes to die. And whatever happened on the journey to his death, he wasn't numb. No, and he was ready. He was ready. And, you know, I, I love that, that you brought that back together, all the way back around. Um, and I, I just want to say, too, for people who have lost someone, even if you haven't created a sign, don't feel like you missed the mark. You know, it's still, they can bring you. You just ask. Mm -hmm. And there was a story to bring. So he bring, that brings me fives a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, license plates, phone numbers, the clock, like you noticed, we noticed the clock. Um, and all you have to do is ask. And then just be ready to receive and be aware. You need to pay attention. 
You know, like if we hadn't been paying attention to the time, we would have just, it would have just slipped away when we were setting up this interview time. Well, one thing I want to say about when people set expectations for a loved one, you know, to come back. And I do believe they can give you, I totally agree with everything you say, signals and so forth. Every now and then I run into someone who sets that bar pretty high and they'll be like, you know, I told my dad or my loved one or my mom, I want a thunderstorm and then I want, you know, an eagle to fly by. And, and I respect that. And maybe you had that relationship that you could in fact see that happening in a scenario, but I, I just don't want people to get too disappointed if they set that bar that high and it doesn't happen. But I will say, so sure, maybe you live on the beach and the odds are a lot better for a seagull, but you may walk into an art store and you find out there's 12 paintings of eagles. I've heard those stories too. And I'm like, well, there you go. So you never know how they're going <laughs> to, you can put your request out there and I do think they'll do their best and maybe they'll do it electronically. That seems to be one I hear a lot, lights blinking or music songs coming on when the radio wasn't turned on or whatever to a favorite song that was shared. So it's there, I, you know, and yes, I just think it's, it's okay to acknowledge that they have ways of reaching us. I have one other little thing I was okay, going to tell yeah. you about that. We were at the Arboretum um, walking. It was Ron's dad's anniversary of his death. No, it was his birthday. It was Ron's dad's birthday. And we were just doing a little honor for his birthday. You know, this gentleman. And um, I did that. I was like, put it out there. And I said, you know, can I have a sign, Jim? But I didn't ask for what the sign would be. That's kind of a fun thing to do, too. It's just like ask for a sign. So we did that. We're walking around and I didn't know what was going to happen. It was like a 45 minute walk through the Arboretum. And there were all these benches. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to give us his name or he's going to give us a message on the sign plaque. And finally, Diana, the very last bench. And it is the um, William Blake poem. You know, you see the eternity in the palm of your hand. And, mm-hmm. um, and it was for the guy that the, the dedication who the plaque was for was named Jim, the Gentle Hunter. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> we never know how it's going to show up, but there it was. You asked, and there it was. You had recommended I read a book by Ram Dass, which the title now? Walking Each Other Home. Walking Each Other Home. One of my favorites. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And one of the things I recall that he had said in the book was, it doesn't matter if, um, you know, if you're, if this is the thing. So like what you want to do every day is quiet your mind, open your heart and live your truth. And I thought that's so beautiful because that's dying and that's living. And that's the thing. If we can all remember, like that's how we want to live our life. And that's when I, when you asked me that about true well-being, that's when I, um, when we formed the company in 2002, it's like, you don't know what you're doing. Sometimes you can't find the words for it. And then you find the words and you realize, oh, this is what it is. So true is that living in your divinity, you know, in your higher the, the best person who we can be, the best version of ourselves. And the well is being well in your body, you know, taking care and honoring your body. And then being is being present, you know, being completely in the present moment and living to the fullest of this moment. So being present in your life and being present for death when it appears and comes into your life. I think that's so, it's like the same thing, you know, it it's like living and dying, but just do it in these principles. And that's all we could all ever ask for. 
And I think it would bring a lot of people peace of mind and actually a richer, more connected, authentic life because you're not running away. Death isn't this super separate thing that we get to later. It's there. It's part of the energy of your life. Now, on one note about that book, that book is written by Ram Dass and Mirabai Bush, just to be clear. And she narrates it. Uh, I have the old CDs. I don't know if they're still available, but I think Audible or something like that might be. You can do it, yeah. I love her voice. And they were very good friends. And she shares their journey from the 70s on. And I highly recommend listening to it if and reading it. I have both because I made a lot of notes in the book over the years. But it's a beautiful book. Yes. Walking Each Other Home. Yeah. So my last question, what's the gift you would say you took away from the experience with your father's death? Well, I would say the gift that I received through that experience that I would love to pass on to everyone else is that You know, we can experience our life right now in a better and more genuine, more authentic way when we wake up to these these experiences of serendipity, these experiences of, you know, it doesn't have to mean that you always have to have these signposts everywhere, but it means that you live in a more heightened awareness and paying attention, you know, waking up to the, the life that we're living. And even though at some point we're going to be dying, which is kind of exciting in some way, (laughs) that we will finish. I feel like our soul lives on. So I don't feel that's my belief is that we have a soul and the soul lives on. So I don't feel like when we die, we, our physical body dies, but our soul doesn't. And I think that that if we can live in that way when we're alive, like live from our soul, live from the soul essence, that for me would be the takeaway of what I experienced with and still experience with my dad. And you took that gift forward. So thank you for being my guest today. I'm so glad that you were my first episode one guest and you were just so generous with all the stories you shared. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me and thanks for letting me have the opportunity to share these stories. Absolutely. 